I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Judges, the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 2. We've been uh, uh, teaching a series on um, God and miracles. We've talked a little bit about the miracles of creation. We've talked uh, a little bit about the, the miracles of Moses in the Exodus and then uh, also the miracles in the wilderness. Last week we talked about the miracles of Joshua, the things that took place um, when Israel conquered the, the promised land, took possession of the, the promised land. But uh, beginning this morning, we'll enter into a different time, a uh, different uh, period in Israel's history. Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, it says, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. Now, what that means is, after all the battles were fought, after all the cities were conquered, uh, the the uh, the land was uh, the promised land was divided up into different territories for different tribes, and he says, "Okay, now uh, it's up to you uh, to go and take possession of little little towns, little villages, whatever there is in in uh, in your area." the uh, The book of Joshua talks about the major battles, but it's not like there was an army that swept through the land like locusts and drove out every person or every inhabitant of the land. So that's what it's talking about. Uh, he. Joshua let the people go. The children of Israel then went into every, went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. Verse 7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. You remember they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Uh, God parted the Jordan River for them or really stopped it up 20 miles uh, above where they crossed. The walls of Jericho fell down. There were... Uh, uh, the enemies of uh, of Israel were uh, destroyed in a number of miraculous ways and so forth. Verse 8, and it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnatheris, in the city, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gosh. And all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord nor yet the works or miracles which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Now, when we talked about um, some of the miracles that God did for Joshua and children of Israel when they entered into the promised land, there's only one battle that Joshua's army ever lost. And that was the battle of the city of Ai. And that was because uh, one of the guys, Achan, I believe his name was, had disobeyed God and had stole some of the stuff from Jericho when everything was supposed to be offered unto the Lord. Jericho was the type of the city of Jericho, and the conquest was a type of the tithe. And it wasn't meant to be taken personally or to enrich the individual. But somebody did this, this, uh, this man named Achan, and his family was apparently in, it, in on it with him. And, uh, and so until that sin was discovered, uh, it caused Joshua's army, the people of Israel, to lose a battle. First one, only one they ever lost. As long as they served God, as long as they obeyed the commandments of the Lord, as long as they kept the word that God had given them through Moses, they won every time. And they won every time without losing a man. 
I mean, you go look at the battles of Israel, that Israel fought. It talks about the thousands of people that were destroyed, and Israel wouldn't lose anybody. As a matter of fact, whenever they did lose somebody, it talked about in one place that they lost three guys, and, and the whole uh, nation of Israel went into mourning because they thought God wasn't with them. Folks, God doesn't play fair. Going into battle against your enemies. And remember, the Bible says that all the Old Testament things were done as types and examples for us. They were written for our admonition. In other words, there's something for us to learn from these things. God didn't expect you to have a great battle with the enemy and just squeak by. God expects you to win without even the smell of smoke on your clothes. But the children of Israel came to a place where they turned away from the, the God of their fathers. Isn't it interesting how, how young people always know best? Younger generation has always been known for, for having all the answers. Well, you know, I'm not going to serve God like my parents did. I'm, I don't see the need to go to church all the time like they did. All this keeping the word and praying all the time. And what good does that do? Keeps you from being delivered in the hands of the spoilers. That's what it does for you. But it's always been the same. People with little experience and little life experience are the ones that the devil tries to pick off. Tries to take whole generations away from the things of God. We sometimes focus on the conquest of Israel. We sometimes focus on the, the successes of Israel. But if you look at the, the history of the people of Israel, they spent most of their time in rebellion against God. I mean, I love to look at the battles of, of Jericho and the conquest of Joshua and all the great things that God did with him, but that was the exception. It was the rule when people followed God, when they kept the word, when they kept the commandments of the Lord and followed according to his direction. But that was far and away the exception to the rule. Now, here's a whole generation that's come up that they don't even remember who God is. Well, what's God going to do in a situation like that? You look at most of the prophecies, the Old Testament prophets and so forth, it's God railing on the people because they turned away from him. Because they would say they served him, they would say they loved him. And again and again and again, the prophets would say, these people serve me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. In other words, they weren't doers of the word. They knew that God was supposed to be on their side, and as long as they said they were with God, then God would do good things for them. But they only wanted God for the things that he provided. They didn't have a relationship with him. So now, basically all of Israel is in rebellion. They're in darkness. What is God going to do? Folks, God can't deny himself even when his people are in rebellion. And so there came the time of the judges. Now, now the Bible tells about, there's a phrase that's spoken a couple of times in the book of Judges. That's, uh, that's very instructive. And it says this. It said there was no king in Israel. So everyone did right in, this, in the sight of his own eyes. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is death. But God didn't stop doing miracles. God didn't stop being God. Just because his people stopped being obedient. So what did he do? Well, God's hand was upon the judges in, in, uh, in many ways. We don't want to take time to, to look through the whole thing. But we'll re uh, remind you of a couple of things that you probably already know or at least have heard stories of. One of the things that God did to show himself strong was work through Samson. 
Bible says God raised up Samson and he talked to his, his, uh, his mother and his father, his parents. An angel came and talked to his parents. And she was barren and uh, a little bit older, I guess. The implication is from the scripture. And the angel said that the whole purpose for the son that she was going to have was to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That's Judges 13 verse 5. To deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Folks, you need to understand something. Even when you're in rebellion, even when Israel was in rebellion, even when people turn away from God, God does not want his people delivered into the hands of his enemy. God doesn't want any child of his, any servant of his under the old covenant. He doesn't want anybody subject to the enemy. God's plan under the old covenant was to deliver Israel from the enemy and all the works thereof by keeping the commandments. His plan is through the deliverance and the redemption that Jesus has brought to us through the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for you to be delivered from every work of the enemy. Jesus came to destroy every work of the devil for you, not for him, for you. So, Samson comes along, and man, Samson is something. He's a reprobate. He's a drunkard. He's a whoremonger. And he's the one God chose. There's hope for you. (laughs) And me too. And so the Bible tells us about some of the miracles that God did through Samson. In chapter 14, verse 6, it tells about how he took a lion by the jaws and ripped him apart. It's pretty good. It tells us in chapter 14, verse 19, that he slew 30 Philistines. Then it tells us in chapter 15, in verse 15, he took the jawbone of an ass and slew a 1,000 Philistines. One guy defeating a 1,000 people. Folks, that's a, a picture, an Old Testament example of what you look like to the devil. Chapter 16, verse 3 of Judges is the the most outstanding thing that I've ever or can even imagine. And that is he gets locked into a city of Gaza. And so he comes to the city gates and picks them up and carries them away. I I just I keep trying to get a mental picture of that. And I just I'm sorry. That's just beyond me. How do you carry away the city gates? Carry them all the way to Hebron, which is about 30 miles away. Finally, you know, the last thing, the last event of his life after he was uh, deceived by Delilah, his hair was cut, which was the, the source of his strength, or at least the outward sign of the source of his strength. God was really the source of his strength. But it was a commandment that he had, was it required to keep, the one commandment that he was required to keep so that the strength would work and flow through him, the power would work through him. After he reveals his secret to her and she betrays him and they put his eyes out and make him a laughing stock, keep him in jail for a long period of time, but his hair starts to grow back. And so at the last great day of the feast, all the lords of the Philistines were gathered together in this one place. It says that the the roof was such, uh, we don't know exactly what this place was, some kind of great hall, but the roof was such that there were 3,000 people just on the roof. Doesn't tell us how many people were inside. And so he asked a young boy to put him between the pillars while everybody's laughing at him. While they're laughing, he pulls the thing down on everybody and kills more in that one event than he did on all the days of his life. Now, the thing about Samson that, that's uh, it's instructive to us is Samson could not have looked like Mr. Universe. 
Now, we imagine Samson as this big, strong-looking guy and stuff. But if that were the case, if he looked strong, why would people be looking for the source of his strength? They'd just find out where he worked out. They'd go duplicate his workout routine, see if they could duplicate his strength. No, he looked like an average guy. He didn't look any stronger than anybody else. And here's the thing. Here's the the picture, the Old Testament picture that I think is instructive for us because Samson is the type of the church. Certainly not perfect, but chosen of God. It's not what he looked like on the outside that counted. It's what he had inside that mattered. And what you have inside is what matters. It doesn't matter if you look bigger or smaller than your enemies and you're always going to look smaller than your enemies. It's what you've got inside that will strengthen you. It's what you've got inside that will put you over. If you have to carry away the gates of your enemies, so be it. It's interesting that that's the very thing that Jesus said, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Pick them up and carry them off if you have to. And that's the picture that we have of Samson. Now, why did God do that? Why did God do it that way? Why did God pick a guy like Samson who obviously had flaws? Well, folks, if I could answer that, I could answer why God picked some people today. And there's no, there's no figuring it out. I mean, there have been people that have been greatly used of God that have operated in sin, and that sin caught up with them, and it brought reproach upon the church. And a lot of people look at that and say, well, see, God never really did call them. Well, that's just stupid. You can look at the signs and the wonders that they perform. Certainly the power of God was upon them. Well, why would God use somebody whose character is not up to par or whose character is not as, as, uh, as spotless as we'd like it to be? I guess you're going to have to wait to get to heaven to ask that one because I don't have an answer. I know there were guys in the healing revival, guys that were subject to drunkenness, They'd get drunk after the meeting was over, and by the next meeting, they'd get out of jail and have miracles the next night. I don't understand how that happens. I don't understand why that would happen. You got people that got tangled up with women. You had women ministers who got tangled up with men. And it didn't stop the power of God from flowing through them. Now, we judge differently. We judge that if somebody's life is not perfect, there's no way God should or would use them. Well, good luck with that one. Because that's not the way that it works. But Pastor Mike, isn't that the way it should work? Well, if that's the case, God wouldn't be able to use anybody. Because everybody's got something that they're dealing with. Some things are just more open than other things. And some of the things that aren't as open as 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 the public things might be considered worse in the eyes of God, even though we don't know about them. Thank God for the mercy of the Lord. I'm glad I don't know your secret sin. And I'm glad you don't know mine. Wasn't what Samson looked like on the outside that matters any more than it looks like what, any more than it matters what you look like on the outside. It's what's inside that counts. Now the next thing, I want you to turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Because of Israel's disobedience and rebellion against God, the Philistines, their, their arch enemies, which, by the way, how many of you have ever heard, um, uh, um, well, when you get down to the, the history of the Middle East and all this kind of stuff, 
you'll even find in maps in the Bible where it talks about when it identifies maps as Palestine in the days of Jesus. You know where the word Palestine came about? It came about through Hadrian, the Roman emperor, about a hundred years after Jesus. And the reason that he named the territory Palestine, he took the territory away from the Jews, the land away from the Jews, and named it Palestine, is because it's representative of their mortal enemies, the Philistines. So he named the land for their enemies. So this idea that Palestine existed and it was called Palestine from the early days and Abraham and all this kind of stuff, that's just hogwash. Okay. Let me start reading in verse 1 of chapter 5, 1 Samuel chapter 5. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon. That's their God. And they set it by Dagon, next to Dagon. This great big statue, huge, you know, 20-foot statue, whatever it was, of Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Don't you just love how God does stuff? And they took Dagon and set him in his place again, set him upright again. And when they arose early on the morning, the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord again. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold and only the stump of Dagon was left to him. <laughs> now, folks, let me tell you something. Even when God's people dis, uh, rebel against him, even when they're in disobedience, God cannot deny himself. Now, you remember what the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was this box, this gold-colored box, covered box, really. It was a certain type of wood that they, that they fashioned uh, gold over the top of. So when you look at it, it looked like it was gold. It wasn't solid gold, but it had the appearance of being solid gold. It had a top where the angels, the cherubim, were facing one another where the mercy seat was. And it was very, very important when it came to the the offering of the blood, the shedding of the blood on the Day of Atonement and the placing of the blood on the mercy seat. This thing had rings in the sides and poles, big long poles were were, uh, supposed to be put through these rings and then carried on the, the shoulders of the priests. You remember that's what they carried around the city of Jericho when Joshua... Came, brought the children of Israel into the promised land. And, uh, and this Ark of the Covenant signified, it's just a box. It signified the presence of God. Now, God didn't live in the box. You can't find a box big enough for God. God didn't live in the box, but it was a type of the power of God. It's a type of Jesus. Now, there were certain things that were placed in the Ark. It says that Aaron's rod that budded, you know, that had um, uh, the stick... That, uh, that bloomed was in the ark. It says that there was uh, a, a jar of manna that was in the ark. It tells us that the table, tablets of stone, the second uh, Ten Commandment stone tablets were in the ark. And so the, these were things that were indicative of not only the power of God, the presence of God with them, but also represents Jesus. Jesus is our ark of the covenant. And so... This thing that represented the power of God, the presence of God, was known as the trophy. The Philistines knew about the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines knew about what had happened at Jericho. The Philistines knew that when the priest took the Ark and stood in the Jordan River, the Jordan River backed up. 
Everybody recognized this is the source of the power of the God of Israel that caused them to, to win every battle that they went into as long as they obeyed God. Now, certainly the Philistines or any other enemies wouldn't have been privy to the fact of whether or not Israel was in obedience to God. They just went out to battle. The ones that Israel won, they recognized it was the Ark of the Covenant that, uh, that they put their trust in. And then when they didn't win, they thought, well, we've defeated their gods. And here's the first thing that happens when they, when they take possession of this ark. The first thing that happens is that God shows your God is nothing compared to the box that represents the God of Israel. Now, that goes back to Exodus. You remember there were nine plagues in the death of the firstborn? We say ten plagues, but nine of them were plagues, and one was the death of the firstborn. Nine plagues were judgment on the nine gods of Israel, of uh, Egypt. Thank you. Each one of those plagues were judgment upon a certain God. In many cases, there were, there were you know, overlaps because of the different gods and what they represented, different gods in Egypt. But time and time again, God did miracles to show that he was greater than the gods of the people that were opposing him. The same thing was true of the Amalekites when Israel went into the promised land and, and fought with the Amalekites. They worshipped the sun and the moon, and that was the day that Joshua commanded the sun and the moon to stand still. Why? To signify that God is greater than the gods of the Amalekites. Now he's doing the same thing to the Philistines. He's showing that he, even when Israel is not in obedience, even when Israel is not in possession of the ark, their god, Dagon, can't stand. Even a stone statue can't stand in the presence of the ark. Now that's not the end of the story here. Verse 5, it says, Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any that came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod until this day. In other words, they abandoned their temple and their, and their statue. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and dismote them with emeralds. That's hemorrhoids. God gets you where it hurts. Even Ashdod and the coast thereof, verse 7, And the men of Ashdod, when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the, of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. Here's this great trophy that they wanted. Now what are you going to do with it? It's kind of like a dog that chases cars. What's he going to do if he catches one? Then sent they therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of the God of Israel about thither or there. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had hemorrhoids in their secret parts. Now, folks, you need to understand something. The great destruction was not the hemorrhoids. When it talks about great destruction, it means there was a plague that went through and killed a lot of people and others had hemorrhoids. You'll see that further on. Verse 10. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass as the ark of God came to Ekron. That the Ekronites cried out saying. They have brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us. To slay us and our people. Nobody wants this thing. They wanted it to begin with. And now they've got it. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. And said send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it go again to its own place. That it slay us not. And our people, for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. 
Verse 12, and the men that died not. See, that's the great destruction, the people that died in the plague. And the men that died not were smitten with hemorrhoids or hemorrhoids, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, folks, what I want you to see is it's not Israel that, they're, that they're, is their problem. It's the God that is of Israel that's their problem. And even when Israel is not there to fight with them, the ark is a real issue to deal with. Now, looking back at it, if you were the Philistines, if you were one of the Philistine kings, what would you learn from this? I would learn. I'd sit there and I'd say, you know, the Philistines, I mean, the the Israelites really aren't the, the, the big deal here. They're just people, just like us. It's this presence of their God that goes with them. That's what's the big deal. Israel doesn't seem like any great thing. We we romanticize things in our thinking. For example, we imagine that Israel, we're always on Israel's side because we know that they were the people of God. And so we imagine that Israel were the ones that were the the, the strong, good-looking people, the technologically advanced people, and everybody else were savages. And and in reality, the, the reverse is the truth. Many of these cities, many of these people were more technologically advanced in weaponry and so forth. You remember, for example, when, uh, when Saul tried to get David to take his armor against Goliath. It tells us about what Goliath's armor was. It tells, tells us about his, the, the staff that was like a weaver's beam or the spear that was like a weaver's beam and his shield, how big it was and stuff like that. Why does it go into detail about that? Because the reason that Saul tried to give David his armor is because nobody else had any in Israel. It was a very unusual thing. Israel was, were not, they were not metal workers. And apparently Saul gained the armor that he did through some of the victories and the battles that he had won ahead of time. He stripped his enemies of armor and had it fashioned for himself. But Israel, were, Israel was not the ones that had the smart bombs. Israel was not the, the, the army that was uh, technologically advanced as far as weaponry and so forth is concerned. And they didn't need to be because they had God on their side. David killed Goliath with, a, with a, a sling and a stone. A sling and a stone is better than a great big shield and, and giant sword if God's on your side. So we've got it totally backwards. We think that Israel was the one that were, they were the ninja fighters. You know, they were the assassins. They were the, the, the special forces. Not so. Nearly every other enemy that they came against outmatched them. And outmanned them in some form. But it was because of the Ark of the Covenant. It was because of the presence of God that was with them. That made them invincible as long as they served God. So what do they do? What are the Philistines going to do with this thing? They come up with an idea to send it back to Israel. But nobody wants to be around this thing. Nobody wants to take it. And so they come up with this idea to put it on a cart. And put two, two cows that have just had calves. And the, the significance is when a cow has just had a calf and, and uh, producing milk for the, for the offspring, then the attention of that cow is upon the offspring and not anything else. But they took these two cows that uh, had just given birth and they, they set them out as kind of a test. They said if these cows leave their calves and go down the road in a different direction, then we'll know that God has accepted our idea to get this thing back to Israel. And that's exactly what they do. 
and they come to a place called Beth Shemesh. Now, Joshua was of the tribe of uh, the Beth Shemesh. Well, he was of that tribe. I don't know how you say it. And, uh, and so these things are, are being watched. They're being trailed by the Philistines from afar off. And it comes to the field of Joshua. It says that it comes to the field of Joshua. Let me start reading here in, uh, in verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14. And the cart came unto the field of Joshua, a Beth Shemite, and stood there. And there was a great stone, where there was a great stone. And they clave the wood of the cart and offered the kine, a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the coffer that was with it, wherein the jewels of gold were. They sent an offering. The Philistines sent an offering with it. Get this. They made gold mice, which was one of their gods. Now, they may have been technologically advanced and warring people and stuff like that, but it doesn't make them smart. They're serving mice as one of their gods. So they make mice, which is a symbol of of their recognition that the Ark of the Covenant is greater than a mice, a mouse. And then they also made golden hemorrhoids. I'm sorry, I just don't have any comment about that. I'm sure there's a joke there somewhere, but I'm just not sure what it would be. I know, let's offer an offering to the Lord. We'll make a golden hemorrhoid. So anyway, that's part of what they sent with it. And so that's what this is, that wherein the jewels of gold were, and put them on the great stone, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. In other words, they, they went back to report, okay, we were successful. This thing's not our problem anymore. And these are the golden hemorrhoids which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto the Lord. For Ashdod won, for Gaza won, for Escalon won, for Gath won, for Ekron won. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both of the fenced cities and of the country villages, even under the great stone of Abel, whereupon they set down the ark of the Lord, which stone remaineth unto this day in the field of Joshua the Beshemite. They thought this thing through. Somehow or another, God will accept this, this because it represents the cities of the Philistines. Now, notice verse 19. Would God be happy with this? Notice verse 19. And he smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten, 70 men. In other words, it means 70 of the leaders of the city and 50,000 outside that, common people in the, in the area. And the people lamented because the Lord had spent many of the people with a great slaughter. Now, why in the world is God taking out the Israelites? Because of their casual attitude toward the ark. Because of their casual attitude toward the ark. Now, folks, you need to understand something. As I said before, God cannot deny himself. And just because you and I want things our way, just because we and the church does it this way, how many times does the church say, well, if God's going to heal me, he's going to have to do it, rather than believing the word and what the Bible says, he sent his word and healed them. They think that they can call the shots with God. And that's not the way it works. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, Paul specifically says that it's a casual, an unworthy attitude about the Lord's body being sacrificed for us, taking stripes upon his back, and with those stripes we were healed. It tells us that the casual attitude causes many of the church to be weak and sickly and many to die prematurely. 
See, even in the age of grace, a casual attitude toward the things of God, toward the power of God, and toward the accomplished work of Jesus doesn't work out real well for you. Now, the difference is, under the old covenant, you did the wrong thing, you fell dead instantly. Under the new covenant, you get by for a little while longer. But there still is a, a, a consequence for casual attitudes toward the things of God. That's one of the, the in my opinion, just my opinion, you, you judge this for whatever you think it's worth. In my opinion, that's one of the greatest dangers of this seeker-sensitive Christianity that's prevalent in the body of Christ today because it's created a casual attitude toward the things of God. It's the idea that anything goes, we just don't want to make sure we don't offend anybody so that we can win everybody into the kingdom. Folks, you can't win anybody into anything of God except by the blood of Jesus. And you start toning down what the blood of Jesus is about and you create this casual attitude toward God where people say, well, yeah, I want to make sure I don't go to hell, but I'll live like hell while I'm here. And that does not work. It may not show up instantly. God will give you time to grow out of that kind of attitude, but eventually there's a price to pay. The Bible talks about one of the characteristics of the last days is people that have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. It does not say that those are unsaved people. That could well be the church. Now, that's just me. I'm not even saying that God told me to tell you that. That's my opinion on it. You judge it for whatever it's worth. But when we get to heaven, you'll be able to say, Pastor Mike, you sure were right about that. (laughs) Now, the next thing, we won't look at all of these. I I won't take the time to, to look through every one of these. But another time it tells us about in 1 Samuel chapter 12, after Israel asked for a king. You remember the story about how that Samuel laments and he complains to God and says, oh, the people have rejected me. And God says, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Israel asks for a king and God gives him a king. He makes Saul the king. And boy, Saul is a good-looking guy. He is the guy that looks like, above all the people, he looks like he should be the king. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He just had the look. But he turned out to be somebody that wouldn't obey God. But even on the day that they asked for a king, even on the day that God gave them a king, Samuel tells the people, he speaks to the people and he says, this is not going to work well for you. You've rejected God. And as a result, here's the sign of your sin. The harvest that you've been working on all year, now it's harvest time. God's going to send a thunder and hailstorm and destroy your crops. Now, what does that signify for us? The Bible says all these things were done as examples and types and, uh, for our admonition, written as types and shadows for our admonition. What is there to learn from that? Here it is. Anytime you and I do what they did, and that is reject the direction of God for our life, whether it's by the inward witness, whether it's by the written word, whatever it is, the word of God, the words of God spoken either through to the church or specifically to our hearts. Anytime we turn away from that to our own desires, our own designs and our own choices, it'll cost you. And it usually costs you financially. Now we could stay here for the rest of the day giving people an opportunity to give testimony of the times that they knew they shouldn't have done something that God was speaking to their hearts about and what it cost them. I've got too many of those stories to share too. 
And I've learned from those experiences that I've had. And that's exactly what they did. They said, no, we don't want God to be our king. We don't want God to be the Lord of our life. I mean, yeah, Jesus is our Savior. That's fine. But we don't want God to be the Lord of our life. We want to do our own thing and do things like everybody else does. And that will cost you. The flip side of that is the Bible says in Proverbs that the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. But there is great sorrow in you making your own way. And again, what does it come down to? It comes down to rejecting God and his word, rejecting the direction that God speaks, either in the written word or the things that he just speaks to your hearts. Folks, that's why it's so important for us to learn how to be led by the inward witness because that's the number one way that God will lead you and guide you. It's the number one way God will bring you into the blessings of prosperity. Are you out there? Well, that's the example of what they did. They said, no, we don't want God to be our king anymore. Samuel was God's mouthpiece. We don't want you. You're too religious. You're always talking about sacrifices and obeying God and not turning away and stuff. We want a king like everybody else has a king. Okay. Say goodbye to your crop. And as a result, they cried out and they said, we've sinned. We see what sin we've created and committed. But by then it was too late. The next thing it tells us, it fast forwards another couple of generations. After Solomon is, uh, David becomes king after Saul. Solomon, his son, David's son becomes king after him. And then after Solomon goes off the scene, his son Rehoboam is uh, entreated by the people. He, He just has taken office, so to speak. And he's entreated by the people. And the people say, you know, Solomon was a great king, but boy, he kept a lot of things going. I mean, his palace was big and, and the, 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 the service uh, that was required for the, the daily stuff in the palace. And it just took a lot of stuff. And as a result, he required a lot in, in forms of taxes and service uh, from the common people of Israel. He required a lot and, and we'd like some relief from that. Let's back this stuff out a little bit. There's too much government regulation going on. So, so Rehoboam gets the advisors together. The older advisors said, you need to relax on the people. The people will serve you, and they'll consider you to be a good king if you relax things upon them a little bit. Back it up. Just take your hand off their necks a little bit and, and, and just make it easier for them. But the young people, bless those young people's hearts, the young advisors said, You don't need to back up on anything. If Solomon was tough, you need to be tougher than him. You need to show them who's boss. So that's what Rehoboam does. He stands up and says, if my father was, you think my father was tough, you just wait and see what happens to me. You just wait and see what you're going to have to require for me. Well, the end result of that is the kingdom of Israel divided. One and a half tribes, Judah and, and half the tribe, I think it was Benjamin, but one and a half tribes went to the south and they said we're not going to accept Rehoboam as our king so they selected another king the ten and a half tribes of Israel they were under the bondage of Rehoboam and and all the the stuff that he required of them and so forth just like he said that he would do he did it but the one and a half tribes the southern kingdom they were known from that point on as Judah because they were the majority of the people that that divided from the kingdom they selected their own king and that king was was Jeroboam so you got Rehoboam that's king of Israel. you got Jeroboam that's king of Judah. Now, Jeroboam knew that he was in trouble because what's going to keep these people? I mean, yeah, they're upset and they don't want 
Uh, they're rebelling against the taxation and the, the government oppression and so forth right now. But what are they going to do when the time comes for them to go to Jerusalem and worship? David has reinstituted the, the worship in Jerusalem. Solomon has built the temple there. So what are they going to do when they go to Jerusalem and they get together with their, their uh, tribal cousins and stuff like that? They're going to want to join back up. So in order to keep that from happening, in order to, to keep them from, from being drawn away, I know what I'll do. I'll set up te- temples in the south, in, the, in Judah. I'll set up a temple at Bethel. I'll set up a temple at Dan. And the people, instead of going to Jerusalem for, to worship God, they can come to these temples and they can worship God there. So he does. Well, a prophet, a man of God, we don't know who it is. It just says that it's a prophet, an unnamed prophet, comes and stands before Jeroboam one day when he's in the temple. And he builds this big altar. He tries to make it nice. It's not Solomon's temple by any means. But he tries to make it nice and, and so forth so that people won't lament not, uh, you know, going to Jerusalem. By the way, it's more convenient for them to stay home or near home and worship here anyway so they can save themselves the trip and so, so forth. <clears throat> so this prophet comes in on the day when Jeroboam is in the temple by the altar. And the prophet says that there will be one that's raised up, a man named Josiah that will be raised up of the house of David and he will sacrifice the bones of the priests, of Jeroboam's priests. Now, you got to remember, the southern kingdom of Judah is Judah and half the tribe of Benjamin. There's no Levites. And the only ones that were anointed or, or separated for the service of the Lord were the Levites. So whoever Jeroboam's got to be his priest are not ones that God's picked. And so the prophet says, Josiah that will be raised up will sacrifice the bones or burn the bones of your priests in Bethel and Dan upon this altar. And he said, and this will be the sign to you. The sign will be that this altar will split in half. And it does, and the ashes spilled out. Well, Jeroboam gets upset because here the prophet has messed up his plan. And so Jeroboam says to the people that are standing there, the soldiers that are standing by the guard, He says to them, take hold of this man. And as soon as he points at him, his hand withers up and dries up. And so then he turns around and says, oh, man of God, pray to the Lord that my hand not stay like this. And he does, and his hand is restored. Now, what is there for us to learn from this? I mean, obviously, it's a miracle because uh, not only what happened to his hand, but also the, the altar splitting in half. What is there to learn from that? Folks, I want you to understand something. The Bible said, Jesus said in John chapter 4, Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Actually, that's John chapter 3 where he's talking to Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Even though Jeroboam is doing what looks to be the right thing. I mean, after all, how bad can it be to make a place for people to worship God? It looks like they're doing the right thing, but it was born of the flesh. I wonder how many churches are like that. They look like they're doing the right thing, but were they born by the direction of the Spirit of God? Or were they born because somebody's trying to make a place for themselves? What about church splits? What about a church that splits and and becomes another church? One of the church splits off and makes their own thing. You think that's born of the Spirit of God? But they're worshiping God. They're singing worship songs. They sing the same worship songs that we do every day or every week. Doesn't mean God's in it. 
One of the scriptures that's always intrigued me is Jesus said at the end, people would come to him and say, Lord, Lord, look at the works we did in your name. And he's going to say, I never knew you. What works are those going to be? I don't think that means he's, he's going to, somebody's going to come up and say, look at the miracles we did in your name. I think it means look at the stuff that we did that we said was for you. But it really wasn't. It's just for us. Folks, there's a lot that goes on in the body of Christ that looks like it's the right thing, but it's being done for people and not for God. Are you with me? What should Jeroboam have done? He should have said to the people, God set up the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon built it at the direction of God, and we need to go every year and keep the sacrifice. Yeah, but that wasn't as convenient. You know, it's an amazing thing. Think just in my lifetime how things have changed. People used to go to church where they felt like they were supposed to and they'd make friends there. Now people pick churches based on where their friends are. Now, folks, I, I'm, I know what time it is. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but, man, you talk about being able to meddle. This is perfect meddling territory. Because there's so much of the body of Christ that's flesh. There's so much of the body of Christ that's just the work of the flesh. It's just the church doing their thing. It has nothing to do with the direction of God. It has more to do with light shows and smoke and mirrors and all that kind of stuff. How are we going to thrill people? We were at a place not long ago, at a service not long ago, and they did the fog stuff and the the lights and and all that kind of stuff and i wondered to myself if the presence of god ever did come in how'd they see it (laughs) what would it do burn up their light show and their fog that which is born of the flesh is flesh just because something looks like it's doing a good work doesn't mean god's in it except the, the bible says except the lord build the house they labor in vain that build it doesn't say they don't get it built. Just said they labored in vain to build it. There's a lot of that going on in church. What's church supposed to be? Church is supposed to be about the word of God. The church is supposed to be about building relationships around the foundation of God's word so that we're encouraged and we grow and we can live in victory in our own lives. Because that victory will be an attractive, it'll be a draw, it'll be a magnet for other people to come into the family of God too. That's what church is supposed to be. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you don't have a big enough youth group. So we're going to send our kids to a bigger youth group. Okay. Good luck with that big crowd. Yeah, but you don't have programs. I have people all the time tell me, you know what you ought to do, Pastor Mike? By the way, that's my favorite opening line. (laughs) Because, of course, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I have no clue what I'm supposed to do. That's left for everybody else in the body of Christ to figure out for me. But I have so many people say, you need to have this program. You know, they've got this program over at such and such church. I used to listen to that. I used to, I spent years. I said, well, thank you. I appreciate the input. I'll pray about it. I'd I'd even lie. Of course, I'm not going to pray about it. I'd even lie about it. Yeah, okay, well, I'll pray about that. Finally, I just got to the point, and I said, well, why don't you go over there to that church? Well, we left that church, and I said, well, then everything must not be rosy over there then. 
Yeah, that's how we knew they had the program because we used to go there. Well, what'd you leave for? If that was the perfect church, go back. Folks, you got so much stuff that any of you seen on Facebook, this stuff about why the millennials are leaving church. Oh, give me a break. The millennials are leaving church because they're spoiled brats. Because they're used to having everything handed to them. They're still living with their parents in their 30s. That's why they're leaving church. Because you can't make them happy no matter what you do. Well, folks, I'm not for anybody leaving church. But I'll tell you what. The time's coming where some people are going to have to leave church to make room for the people that are hungry. Because the glory of the Lord will be seen in the last days. Okay. Oh, by the way, that story about Jeroboam and the the prophet, the unnamed prophet that comes in and tells him what's going to happen. That prophet was specifically told by God, after you tell Jeroboam what I tell you to say, don't stay there and eat. Jeroboam stops him and says, well, okay, now that you've healed my hand and now that I've heard from the Lord, stay and we'll make a feast. And the prophet says, no, God told me specifically that I wasn't supposed to eat. And then another guy, a false prophet, comes up and catches the guy on his way, on his journey, and he says, Stay and eat with me. And the guy does. And the end result is as soon as he eats with this guy and leaves his house, a lion eats him up. (laughs) Now, there's something to learn from that too. And that is the consequences of disobedience, even when we're tricked into doing the wrong thing, are oftentimes much greater than we think they're going to be. We think disobeying God on a little thing will just create a little problem, if anything at all. Maybe it's just something, well, you know, God might not be thrilled with this, but we'll be all right. I mean, after all, we confess our sin. God's faithful and just to forgive us from every sin. There's a lot of things in life that will cost you more than you think that it will. And when God says to do something, you better do it the way that he says to do it and not just try to fudge around the edges and say, well, this is good enough. Now, there's two times, real quickly, I want to show you two times in this period of time where God does something on behalf of Israel and does, it, does, them, uh, does them good. One is in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 9. Samuel spoke unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange God and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Asheroth and serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mezpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mezpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mezpah. In other words, there came a point in time, a specific point in time, where Samuel, this is before they even chose a king. They're rebelling against God, but Samuel calls them back to repentance, and they do. They repented. They did what God told them to do through Samuel the prophet. And they came to this certain place, this certain town named Mezpah. Now, the Philistines are their enemies. And the Philistines hear that everybody's gathered in one place, and they think, oh, this is great. We can go take them all out. Verse 7, And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb 
and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, that's a type of Jesus, by the way, the Philistines drew near to battle against the Lord. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. The word discomfited means bring confusion upon. And they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mezpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came into Bethkar, another town. Now, folks, what I want you to see is God defeated the enemies with a sound. There's another time in... uh, Let me get the reference here. There's another time in 2 Samuel chapter 5 when David is king. The Philistines are gathered in a certain place and, uh, and David inquires to the Lord saying, what should I do? Should I go up against them? And God says, circle around behind them. Uh, let, me, let me get this and read this. Uh, it's Second Samuel chapter 5. Just a couple of verses. But I want you to see what this says specifically. So God tells David, circle around behind them and wait for my signal. And here's what it says. Then David, and this is 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 23. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass. That means encircle around behind them. And come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be when thou hearest the sound of a going. You see that in the King James? Hear the sound of a going. Other translations say, when you hear the sound of a troop marching in the treetops. Then thou shalt bestir thyself, for then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him and smote the Philistines from Geba unto Gaza until, until thou come to Gaza. In other words, it says they, they whipped him all the way down the road. In both cases, when they turned to God and you found someone or the people themselves that repented. And this is what the whole thing is about. In the, the miracles in the time of rebellion, the only deliverance that God brought to Israel was in the time that they repented. In one case, 1 Samuel chapter 7, and in the second case, 2 Samuel chapter 5, when David was a man that served God with his heart. And he defeated the enemies with a sound in both cases. He defeated the enemies of Israel with a sound. Now, folks, that reminds me. First Chronicles chapter 20, when it talks about how the, the, the five armies were coming out against Israel. And the prophet speaks and says, the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. Go out against them tomorrow. You'll find them at a certain place. And it says, when they, the next morning they rose up and the king, Jehoshaphat, set singers and praisers out in front of the ark. And when they began to sing into praise, the Lord set ambushments. The only sound that the Bible talks about under the New Covenant, what we're supposed to learn, the only sound that the Bible talks about in the New Covenant that quiets the enemies, that stills the avenger, is the sacrifice of praise. Is the sacrifice of praise. Now, there's, there's teaching in the body of Christ today, and it's wrong. I mean, there, there's an element of truth to it. But, you know, if, uh, well, Brother Hagin used to say it like this. He said, if you wanted to poison an animal, you wouldn't put a bowl of poison out. There's no animal is going to go up and eat poison. But if you sprinkle poison on a good piece of meat, then you can trick that animal into eating it and poison the animal. Well, in the same way, false doctrine, wrong teaching, doesn't set itself out as a bowl of wrong teaching. It mixes itself, mixes itself in with some other things that have merit and, and that are good. 
And there's a lot of that with the grace teaching that's out there today. Because the idea that you're not supposed to ask God or repent for anything that you've done, you're not supposed to ask God for forgiveness. Folks, that's just wrong. Or if it's not wrong, this is way beyond where John was. And it apparently was way beyond where Jesus was too because if you look at the the message that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Revelation, he told three of them to repent. Well, if Jesus had already paid the price for all of their sins and they didn't need to repent, why is Jesus telling the churches to repent? Now, I know where it comes from, and I'm, I'm not against anybody. I know where it comes from. It comes from the idea that, that, that one, particularly one, one person, comes from one main source, that one person was taught that uh, the confession was all about the confession of sin, and he spent his life confessing his sins, and it led him into a, a place of inferiority and a place of unrighteousness, the consciousness of being unrighteous. And I understand that. But the Bible talks more about the confession of your faith than it does the confession of sin. And I, I'm sorry that he was taught wrong that it was all about confessing sin. But it doesn't change the fact that there are times where we have to repent and confess our sins. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us very specifically. If we confess our sins, writing to Christians, if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now they will say, no, Pastor Mike, First John chapter 1 was written not to the church, was written to the unsaved. Well, where then... Did the Holy Ghost forget that it's not the confession of sin that saves you? Doesn't the Bible say we're saved by the confession of Jesus as our Lord? Unsaved people can't remember all the sins they've committed to confess them anyway. I don't care how young somebody is when they get saved. You can't remember all the sins that you've committed. It's not the confession of sin that saves you. It's the confession of sin as a believer that restores you to right fellowship and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. The sin doesn't change your relationship with God, but it sure does change your fellowship with God. Are you with me? And so this idea that we're not supposed to confess our sin, that we're not supposed to repent for anything, that there's no need to repent, is creating a lot of this casual attitude toward the things of God. Because, hey, we can just do anything. Because God knew what I was going to do before I did it. There's no point to repent from it. God's already paid for that. Jesus already wiped that sin away. Well, he paid for sin generally. But anything you do, anything that you and I as Christians do that our heart condemns us for, that our heart brings conviction to us because we know that we've done wrong, it's a violation of the Word of God, a violation of our own heart that we do not repent from makes us hard-hearted. It causes our conscience to be seared. Now, if that's the way somebody wants to live their Christian life, okay. No skin off my nose. But that's not the way I'm going to live. I'm going to live with a tender heart toward God. I'm going to live in such a condition, such a place of fellowship, where any time that I do something that violates my own heart, I fix it instantly. Because if I get to the place where I don't listen to God as far as the convicting power of God on the inside is concerned, And that's going to keep me from being able to hear the voice of God and other things too. Every time Israel repented, God did something really, really big for them. Now that's true for a nation, it's true for an individual. 
Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek, from, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now that was written for Israel specifically because they were a nation of people. Some people will say, yeah, but America is a Christian nation. Well, it's really not, folks. It was founded on Christian principles by Christian men and women. But we're a long way away from what it was. So the nation of God is not a physical territory, whether it be Israel or America or any other nation. The nation of God is the church. So if this is an Old Testament type for us, then that means repentance is still available and and necessary for the church when we miss it. Now, I don't know about you, but the more I confess my righteousness and the more I confess who I am in Christ, the less and less often I have to repent from sin and wrongdoing. So there's no question. It's not the confession of sin that makes you strong. It's the confession of your righteousness that will empower you over sin. But since none of us are perfect, there are going to be occasions where we're going to need to confess our sin. Because I, don't, I just don't want that broken fellowship with God. I just don't want that. The Bible talks about the relationship that we have with the Lord is an, the example of that. The earthly example of that is, is a, the marriage relationship. Well, you husbands and wives, you go for a while and not say you're sorry to your wives or your husbands when you do something wrong. See how well that works for you. That'll break fellowship in a hurry. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15 says this. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning, meaning repentance, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. In other words, they rejected their strength, they rejected their deliverance because they refused to turn. As I said before, the majority of Israel's history is one of rebellion. I wish that weren't the case. But it's so much the case that when Jesus gets there, he's not really expecting a welcome reception. He's not willing, really expecting to be welcomed warmly. Now, the people accepted him. People loved him. People flocked to him. But the religious leaders were the ones he had the biggest problem with. The religious leaders were the ones that he called hypocrites. Snakes, empty graves, whited sepulchers. And he said they were of their father, the devil. Why? Because they're following the pattern of Israel's history, denying the truth of the word, denying the commandments themselves and imposing instead their own ideas upon the people. Jesus said that they, they were willing to encompass, you know, travel over land and sea to make one proselyte. In other words, to convince one person to, to, to uh, convert one person to their Judaistic ideas. Not just the law of Moses, but what they called the law of Moses, which was man's traditions. And this is the result, he said, and you make them twofold the child of hell as yourself. But when we stay in right fellowship with God. When we stay in right fellowship with God, we're like the picture of Joshua. When we stay in right fellowship with God, we're like the picture of the conquest, the conquerors of the promised land, the ones that possess 
all that God had provided for them, all that God had promised for them to have. Blessings, health, well-being in every area. No enemy could stand before them. Remember what God told Joshua, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. That's the picture of the person walking in fellowship and obedience to God. I'm, uh, I'm struck by the fact that the Old Testament talks about the Ark of the Covenant and the power of the Ark of the Covenant, which was just a box. God didn't even live in the box. It just symbolized. It carried some things that were important and, and, and represented important things as far as the people of God was concerned. But God didn't live in that box. Never has, never will. But a box that represented certain elements of that which Jesus fulfilled was enough to wipe enemies out, discomfort them in every situation that they encountered. How much more does the Bible talk about the greater one on the inside of us? Greater is he that's in you than the Ark of the Covenant. Greater is he that's in you than the power that was in the box. No wonder Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 that our eyes would be opened, our spiritual eyes would be opened, that we would know the exceeding greatness. How big is that? How big is exceeding greatness? That we would know the exceeding greatness of the power that works in us as believers. In that sense, we're like Samson. We may not look like much on the outside, but the power of God that we've got on the inside will overcome anything and everything that rises up against us whether it's one or a thousand. Even if we look like we're locked in on every side, carry the gates off because of the power of Jesus that dwells within us. That's the example that we have from the Old Testament. The example of unlimited power to overcome anything that rises up in your face. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are the God that doeth miracles. Thank you, Lord, that your hand is not shortened, that you cannot heal, nor is your strength abated, that you cannot save. Thank you, Father, that greater is he that lives in us than he that is in the world. Thank you that you've made us more than conquerors through him that loved us. Thank you, Father, that your power that dwells and resides within every believer, every one of us, not just the strong ones, not just the talented ones, but the power of God that resides in every believer is sufficient to overcome every obstacle that rises up against us. Thank you, Father, that defeat is impossible when we hold fast to your word. Thank you, Father, therefore, that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. All of our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we are righteous because Jesus was made sin for us. Thank you, Father, that the peace of God is ours in every circumstance. Lord, we thank you that even as the Ark of the Covenant made your power known when it was in the presence of your enemies, so also shall your power in us be made known everywhere that we go. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you're at work in things that we can't even see. We thank you, Father, that the power of your word never fails.
Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word will never fail or fade out or come to an end. Thank you, Father, that victory is ours. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Victory is ours. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Father, give us miracle faith. We declare, Father, we have faith for miracles. We say in our hearts because we say with our mouths because we believe in our hearts. We have miracle working faith. We have the same faith, the same measure of the faith that created the worlds. We have the same measure of faith as Jesus. The same spirit of faith, the same faith that healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed the lepers, caused the blind to see and the dumb to speak and cast out devils. We have miracle working faith in Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Hallelujah. Let's all stand together. Let's say that. Let's make that confession. Lift one hand toward heaven and close your eyes and let your heart agree with it. Say this after me. I have a measure of the God kind of faith. I have a measure of the faith that created the worlds. I have the same spirit of faith that Jesus used here on the earth. I have the same faith that Jesus used to heal the sick, open blind eyes, cause the dumb to speak, and the deaf to hear. In Jesus' name, I have miracle working faith. Amen. 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 I would encourage you to start saying that. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The more you say it, the more faith will rise in your heart. And what's the difference in having miracle working faith and just normal faith? It's just what you believe and say. God created you with the potential for miracle working faith. So it's just us, up to us whether or not we develop it. Amen. Say it with me again. I have miracle working faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.